Welcome to the NPM podcast. Joining me today is uh, Elias Hinckley, a partner at Baker Baker Botts, to discuss the latest state of affairs in green hydrogen in the U.S. Welcome to the program today, sir. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. The shine on the October 13th, 2023 announcement on which hydrogen hubs would be selected to apply for up to $7 billion of funding under the bipartisan infrastructure law wore off in December. As guidance from the Inflation Reduction Act and the Section 45B credit was deemed unfavorable by some. This is because uh, there was concerns that um, in order to incentivize hydrogen developers to utilize clean energy sources such as solar and wind, to develop uh, the molecules, it was more than offset by the phased and hourly matching requirement, which kicks in for development starting in 2028 uh, from an annual matching uh, prior to that. And this was built into the guidance that was released on December 20, the December 22nd guidance. So with public hearings uh, slated to commence uh, this March, uh, thought I'd get Mr. Hinckley to join in on uh, where the debate is. So. Uh, before we talk about 45V, uh, why don't we quickly run through why uh, the hydrogen hub opportunity, combined with the benefits of the tax credit, uh, will benefit green hydrogen production in the U.S.? And how does this uh, comp against what's going on in Europe? Sure. Um, and so maybe I'll take those in reverse order. So, so the European structure is very much a set of enforcement tools where you have requirements that you need to meet in terms of the relative reduction in carbon intensity for uh, fuels and thermal thermal load and things like that. And so their green hydrogen drivers are really built in as regulatory requirements. Our approach here in the U.S. has been and continues to be, as we see sort of through the tax credits and, and what the DOE has put out in terms of funding and funding opportunities, really focused on subsidy, um, sort of two different policy approaches. And so Ours is more carrot driven. Europe at this point is more stick driven. And we can talk about sort of the evolution of policy making and, and sort of how you adjust behavior. But but sort of at its core, you've got two different programs coming at things from two different ways. Um, I think for green hydrogen in particular, there was really as as the administration and Congress worked together on a, on a set of supports. Um, there was a view that. Right, this is a very nascent industry, right? There, there is some hydrogen production. It's not, it's virtually none of that is green. And so if you're going to take hydrogen and move it into sort of mainstream as a sort of low carbon thermal replacement or a long-term energy storage medium, or even as a transportation fuel, you had a lot of work to do, right? There was, there was no industry there. And so part of what drove the policy decisions that were made was what was viewed as the success in the solar space and the energy storage space, where you have this sort of crazy decline in prices over a fairly short timeline because things scale as things scale. You get sort of both the economies of scale, better technology, but as the adoption curve ramps up, prices come down. And so I, I think the thought was, right, you use both some direct funding in the hub context as well as the tax credits and use those two pieces as the fulcrum to try to accelerate adoption. Um, what the hubs were meant to do was slightly different than what the 45V credits meant, meant to do. The hubs were really about building out the full ecosystem, right? And so for hydrogen, this is a little different than what you have in the solar space or energy storage, uh, battery storage space, right? So, so here I need, I can produce hydrogen, but if I don't have a place to use it or a, or a method by which 
to, to transport it to where it will be used. I don't have something that's valuable in the market. And none of those pieces of the industry sort of exist on their own. And so you're trying to get all three to build, but practically nobody can build until the other two are certain, right? So I can't build production. I can't finance my production until I'm certain I can transport my hydrogen to where it's going to get used and I've got a customer to use it. And so what the hubs were trying to do was, was build sort of an ecosystem right there at the seven or eight locations that was, you know, this will be both the consumption to the extent we need transportation, the transportation and the production all sort of built into a single ecosystem. Um, and then obviously, right, it was significant funding. There was a lot of enthusiasm there. Are, you've got sort of the, the lead applicants, but behind that, each of the hydrogen hubs had a whole bunch of, or still has a, a large number of participants in those hubs. And so there's definitely enthusiasm for what the effort is. Um, but your point, there was some hope that the rules on 45V would be a little more accommodating to support the economics. And so, yeah, the, some of that enthusiasm has soured a little bit in the wake of, of getting those rules. Great. So uh, getting to the some of the aspects of 45V, um, as I alluded to earlier um, about uh, hourly versus matching, you maybe just walk us through what this means for a hydrogen developer and how it affects um, the uh, CapEx involved in uh, building and maintaining uh, these systems. Sure. And and in the, the temporal matching piece, the sort of hourly versus annual matching is, is the place where I think most people have focused on the sort of how the rules are not necessarily adequate to support the kind of economic growth that, that was hoped for in the hydrogen space. Um, there were two other pillars. Right? So you have the temporal pillar, sort of how you match the timing of use. There's a geographic piece and there's also an incrementality or additionality component as well. Um, but, but specifically the hourly versus annual matching, the challenge that creates, it, well, if you stop and think for a moment about sort of where we generate the, the majority of our non-carbon emitting electricity that you need to run your electrolyzers, one of the ways you're going to run, you're going to produce your hydrogen, the most, the most likely you're going to produce your hydrogen, um, right? Those inputs are largely going to be solar and wind, which are incremental. Um, you don't have 24-hour access. And so if I spend if I spend a lot of money to build a hydrogen production facility, I want to be able to run it 24 hours a day. If I can't do that, it's very difficult to make the economics work. And so if I've got annual matching, I can attract a couple of different places. I can overbuy. And ultimately, I can get to a place where I'm comfortable. I've got coverage. I've got enough sort of green electrons going in to match my green hydrogen coming out. When, it, when we move to, to hourly matching, and that's, that switch gets flipped in the current proposed rules in 2028, when I go to hourly matching, now I've actually got to match my production time with when I'm getting those electrons in on an hourly basis, and that gets harder. There are gaps in the day, there are gaps in seasonality, and so it's much harder to model out the consistent operation of my hydrogen production that I need for financing purposes and economic availability for my project if I've got to use hourly matching as compared to annual matching. The, the other piece that I think frustrated people with those sort of how those rules came out was the European rules, which are generally seen as a little more stringent than the US rules, actually make that switch in 2030 effectively. And so the, the US rules are, are, are stricter on that front. I think we had rumblings 
But I think it still surprised people that that's where we landed with that sort of earlier earlier cutoff, making it a, a more difficult sort of hurdle to get over. And practically, you know, there are a handful of projects that might be in place before that, but almost everybody who's, in a, who's on a development timeline will tell you that 2028 would be sort of the earliest they could possibly be operating. And so effectively, you're trying, you're, you're now having to build this hourly matching concept, which is hard. Uh, and getting to that 24 hours, of course, today for as NPM readers and everyone else knows, even for solar and wind projects and being like a clean energy provider, it's, it's very tough in general. Like there's not 24 hours in the day. You can source the battery technology, which is another podcast in and of itself. Everybody's comfortable with two to four hours. But then when you start to talk about six to eight, they're like, oh, uh, we're getting there. And then longer, you know, longer form, which California started to embrace uh, longer duration, excuse me. You know, again, it's few and far between. So um, it's just not there yet, that kind of solution. Why do you think, um, why do you think they, they opted for 28 to rush it that way? What do you think was behind that? So it's, you know, it's sort of an interesting I guess it's a philosophical question, um, right? If, if, you're, if your motivation for driving investment into green hydrogen is, is, is climate-driven, it's sort of two schools of thought here. One is you want to ramp the industry as fast as you can to get the technology in place, and then you can backfill with sort of how green it is. Um, the other is if you force the technological adoption today, to start at a greener playing field, if you will, maybe that accelerates the, the process by which green hydrogen comes to market. Um, and so it's sort of a, a steep and then a flatter curve as opposed to a slower than steeper curve. I, I don't know. I, I feel like what we've seen historically is that the more dollars you put into an industry, the faster it adapts, the faster it evolves and the faster the growth would be overall. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't have a good answer as to why, um, but I think that's sort of the. Well, the I guess, I guess, I guess an add-on question to that is, um, were there any provisions under 45B to support blue hydrogen? Like, is there an intermediate measure here? So the, the, the underlying rules that came out in the Inflation Reduction Act have, right, that there are lower credit thresholds for, uh, more carbon intense, but not sort of traditional gray hydrogen production. Sure. And so, so those exist in there. These rules didn't do much to address sort of specifically how we were going to reach those blue calculations. The same rules kind of apply, but practically if, right, so if, if I'm making blue hydrogen where I'm having, where I'm car capturing carbon out of a natural gas supply, for example, right. right, that the temporal matching piece is less of an issue for me because I can manage when that's going to happen. So the the challenges these rules presented really hit on the on the sort of what we talk about is the true green piece, right? That three dollars mm -hmm. per kilogram credit that's sort of the holy grail. Right. That's where these rules really hit. They have they'll have ripple effects into people looking at blue hydrogen, but it's it's a much less significant impact is my understanding. Okay. Thanks for that. Let's talk about the uh other pillars then. Um regionality and additionality. Um, can you break down uh, how each of these might uh, impact uh, developers? Sure. So, so regionality is, is fairly simple, right? They, they, they've split the country into a series of regions and you just have to demonstrate that, that the source of your energy that's 
producing your hydrogen comes from within that region to match it. Um, there are obviously places where those lines get drawn where it's it would be frustrating because people were looking at, I've got this wind farm I was going to draw from that's on the wrong side of the line. Um, but in general, I don't think there was a lot of, I haven't heard a lot of concern with respect to the geographic splits. In fact, some people have suggested that they thought the geographic targeting might be even tighter than it was. So I think the, geog the geographic piece is, is, is pretty well managed. The additionality side is, is a little bit more challenging. Um, in particular, right, the, what, what, what we used was a three-year look-back rule. So from the time your hydrogen production facility starts, you can take inputs that were placed in service three, three years prior. Um, and so the idea is that you can't just go find sort of orphaned, low low carbon electricity sources and plug into those, which which obviously is a big drag if you were looking at, at hydroelectric or nuclear as options, because those fleets kind of are what they are. There are a few exceptions, obviously there's some, and there's some shuttered nuclear plants that could potentially still qualify. We can talk about that in more detail. Um, but, but practically it means that all of the power that's going into your electrolyzers to drive your hydro production has to be new production. Um, and so that, again, creates some challenges where you thought you could tap into existing sort of resources that were relatively low cost, that were low emitting. Can I just tap into those and, and, and use that as my base? Um, that apparently is not going to work under the proposed rules. And so those are sort of those make up your three pillars. And when you put them together, especially the additionality and the temporal use piece, it gets a little harder to actually find your way to meet the necessary requirements to qualify. Yeah, it kind of almost uh, lends itself to basing your hydrogen production kind of out in the West, in a sense, like you're dealing in close proximity to some of these very, very big projects that are being proposed, even like to say in tech, use Durkata as an example, if you will, which is why I think some of these proposed developments are in texas you know these yeah. are big 300 megawatt you know pieces and you're able to contract out some of that to fund the fund your electrolyzer that that could work right and you can do you can do other things too and in a market like ERCOT, you can overbuild right? and you can you can play with some of that overbuilds in into the into the power markets and sort of support some of your economics that way at the at the at the peak edges of that power market mm -hmm. um so there are yeah, there, there are some natural, there's some natural bias in sort of how these rules break down. Um, yeah. You can just look in the, even in the BLM plan that was put out about the West, all these projects, they're green lighting are like some massive projects out in Idaho, Arizona, Nevada. Seems like there's plenty of opportunities down the road. And obviously, you know, everybody has to get interconnected. It's going to take a, t take a while, but to your point, it's 28, like it's coming, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the other, you talk about sort of, geographical winners, there's a little bit of a renaissance going on in the geothermal space. And I think for that yeah, industry, that. Yeah. right, because that is, that is baseload power that's mm -hmm. got a zero, zero carbon footprint to it. And so there's some interesting possibilities there too. Yeah. I've, I think we've seen a couple of new parties enter the space too. We were kind of used to Fervo, you know, being a dominant and, and GVO too, I guess. And there's been some other, other folks lately in that space. Yeah, I, I, I actually spent a lot of time working with geothermal folks. Back Ormat, sorry, that's what I meant. Ormat. Yeah, Ormat yeah. And Fer and but 
but you go you go back you know 10 or 15 years ago it was sort of geothermal is going to be a big slice of how we're how where power is going to come from and for a couple of curiosities sort of that industry never bloomed the way people thought it would but it seems to be having renaissance it'll be interesting to see if if these hydrogen rules don't accelerate that a little bit yeah that's interesting to hear um so in terms of the projects that have so far been put out there and you can adjust blue in that discussion too if you want because they've been announced like what what copenhagen infrastructure partners was doing in louisiana uh, and then obviously some other projects in Texas that have been publicly put out there. Uh, have you made any kind of like broader observations about like how these things are being built? Are they going to succeed? Like what, what characteristics are common to all that? Just be interesting to get some broad thoughts on that. So in terms of sort of what the universe of development looks like, I would say that there are, there's a pretty wide range of different models of how people are coming at this, um, right? You got to be from everybody from people producing on a basis that was purely meant to be ammonia to be exported to, you know, people are looking for sort of a pure play hydrogen sort of in a true hub setting, um, right? You, you're building both demand and supply sort of in the same geographic region. Um, so you see sort of this range of possibilities in terms of who's the most likely to move. I think, right, I think there are two factors at this point. One is, how do you build the market for your hydrogen? And so maybe a, a approach, which is I'm building demand right there with my supply overcomes enough of the market challenge that even with the, the additional economic challenges that the 45V rules seem to seem to suggest will, will, will overlay this, you can still move forward. Um, and the other will be the groups that had sort of taken a view that the rules are going to be a little stricter than what everybody thought. And so you had people who are already thinking about, okay, how do I get how do I build out this sourcing, this green sourcing to actually be green enough to meet? And for some of them, they were trying to get to a place to be green enough to meet the European rules because they were going to export, again, whether it was ammonia or e-fuels, uh, you're okay. already sort of working in that direction. And so for them, they've got a good, a, a sort of a, a, a good step ahead when these rules come out. They've got some other challenges with the way the EU rules, EU rules dropped, but you know, I think those those feel further along and more likely and more financeable in the current environment. Okay. Um, so, you know, again, we, we've gotten some guidance issued. There's going to be hearings that commence, I think, towards the end of March. Um, you know, maybe this question is a, is a rhetorical, but like what adjustments do you think the IRS should make and what do you think they actually will make when they issue final a final ruling here? So in, in terms of should make, do a little careful because we have to have people on, on multiple sides of these issues. Um, I ask you to make an educated guess, sir. That is all I'm asking for. Okay. So, so if, if we're going to focus on just what I think will happen, um, historically, if you look at how treasury regulations have been issued in proposed form and what they look like in final form, they track pretty closely. Those proposed regulations are meant to be sort of, this is a test run of exactly how this is going to look. Um, but rarely do you see something as politicized as this. And I know there was an enormous amount of work that went in, right? The White House put together a task force across the agencies to, to, to work on this. So there's a lot of thought that went into how these rules came down. Um, but I'm not sure that everyone appreciated how political this process would be. And so there is an enormous amount of pressure to sort of 
to soften these rules, at least in terms of the timing for the temporal matching, for example, or some of the incrementality, additionality rules around existing low carbon assets like nuclear, um, which is all my way of equivocating saying, I don't really know how this is gonna play out. I was in a conversation a couple of days ago where somebody suggested that the timeline was gonna get stretched and we probably wouldn't have a clear set of final rules until late in the year at the earliest, which is politically interesting. Um, but that suggests that maybe there's more change in play than we realize, right? A quick turn would suggest that the rules look a lot like they're going to look. Right. A longer stretch maybe suggests that there's some room for some real material changes. Now, obviously, there are some places where they left some open questions and asked for feedback, and that's all got to be processed. But but the idea that this will go slower than we thought makes me wonder if there's not some room for some actual sort of shift in, in, the, in the fundamentals here. Okay, thanks for that. Um, so getting just into some of these derivative investments, which we've observed quite a bit out there, uh, Macquarie's investment in the clean fertilizer business, Alice Agro, and then um, the the Danes, European Energy, uh, EE, putting an investment into an e-methanol project that they've been trying to grow in Texas. Um, it sounds like that's, you know, the way investors are starting to just play the space in general. But um, are, are you uh, just observing that we're likely to see more of projects like this? So, yes, and I think part of that is, and I think when you look at some of the things that that are happening sort of in and around focused on the hydrogen hubs, this is a little less of a focus because there you're sort of meant to have a built-in sort of demand center as yeah. part of the process. Right, right. When you look at the projects that are living outside of those hubs or sort of peripher peripheral to those hubs, there you've got to think about how sort of how your demand builds. And so if you can build e-fuel production or ammonia, which is sort of in some ways just a carrying medium for the hydrogen, it creates other opportunities for different markets, right? I can, I can, I can ship ammonia to Asia. They can then use that either as a direct fuel, they can crack it and pull the hydrogen that way. But but there's a market that I've got pretty good access to. If I can meet the European rules, I can ship to Europe and there's there's a market there. And so I think those derivative plays are a lot of that's driven by looking at where demand may mature faster than here domestically. Okay. Um, just to uh, cap it off about the um, bank and tax equity market, which, uh, by the way, it's January 31st um, when we're recording this. It's already been a, a busy month in that market, just on the traditional side of things. Yes. Um, in terms of the support of the green hydrogen or even the blue hydrogen market. Um, wh when do you think optimally you're going to see some of these projects uh, go to the, the bank and tax equity markets? It sounds like even through this conversation that we're probably a couple of years too early to even talk about this quite yet. But, you know, like we said, there are investments in play. Things are being built. They're not talking about 2028. They're talking a little bit earlier. Um, just curious what, what you're hearing out there in terms of when this might hit uh, hit the PF market. So, so we're having some of the conversations now. People are starting to ask sort of how do I think about this? Not just how do I think about how I'm qualifying for the credit, but but thinking about sort of how am I monetizing the credit? Or you've got different options out there with direct pay and transferability, as well as the existing sort of traditional tax equity market. And so we're talking through some of those structural discussions, both sort of from a how do I need to think about the the ownership structure of my project, but how should I be thinking about the conversations I'm starting to have with lenders for, for the for the other side of my project finance. So 
we're at the early stages. Um, and there are probably a couple of projects that, as you pointed out, can move sooner. So I think we'll start to see some of these move in a, in a meaningful way over the next 18 months or so. Um, but I think for a lot of it, there's going to be some delay as we wait for clarity on rules. Um, and so I think that sort of, when you look out sort of at that 26 kind of time horizon, that's when I would expect this to really sort of become a very hot area in terms of the finance side of it. Um, and it'll be interesting when we get there, to your point, right? Tax equity has been, this market is red hot right now. I've got all the other things feeding into it. The credits have been expanded. And so and there are new investors coming in, right? We're seeing that transferability has definitely opened the gates for new investors coming into the market. But what we don't know is sort of what the ultimate capacity is. And do we start to see some constraints when we get out into 26 and beyond? Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting dynamic that we're tracking, but don't have good, clear answers for. Yeah, I mean, I think we're debating capacity now, even in 2024, right? With storage, you know, now massive ramp up along with everything else, you know, like what's the capacity look like? Um, anyway, well, last question for you on contracts, which is going to be also super important as we talk about project finance and supporting these things over the longer term. Um, I've been told that some of these contracts are going to look like take or pay for the most part. Um, just maybe give me a, a maybe broader overview about what, what it's going to look like on your end. Um, I mean, that's just, I think people just making assumptions about how they think it's going to turn into what it's going to turn into, but you know, I just haven't heard enough. So this is, and, and we see this sort of hydrogen through the balance of your, of your truth. I guess LNG is kind of a basis for some of this, I, I suppose, but. You got you a little bit of a basis there. Um, and so, right. It's sort of a, funny place because for a lot of the people who are in this development market, they come at it from the power side. And I cannot project finance a power project if I don't have long-term commitments. But once you get into the, the molecule space, those contracts tend to be more sort of liquid market driven without long-term commitments. And so, yeah, this is going to be a little bit of a challenge in terms of how the underlying agreements piece together to allow for financeability. Um, and especially so where you've got these very sort of, sort of discrete projects where you don't have, there's not a liquid market for green hydrogen and there's not going to be one right away. And so those discrete projects, you've got to find a way to have long-term certainty around where that revenue comes from. And typically you build that contractually. Um, so I think that has to play into that some sort of long-term long commitment between production and use has to start to get built out contractually in order for the industry really to get to the, the sort of baseline for financing that's required. Great. Well, uh, that's about all the time we have. Uh, so, Mr. Bigley, appreciate your time today. And uh, please tune in next time. Uh, book out. <laughs>